Welcome to Who Knows Real Estate, Episode 3, Scaling Up Your Residential Portfolio. I'm Kevin. And I'm Jim. What an incredible episode with our guest today, Tom Cruise, who scaled from zero to 259 houses in seven years. Tom shares exactly what he looks for in deals, how he finances them, how he scaled his portfolio, why he works with subsidized housing, and if you stick around after the fire round, he dives deep into creative lease terms and how he lowers his maintenance cost. Here it is. Today we have Tom Cruise, with, who's a local real estate investor in Wilmington, North Carolina. Tom, would you mind giving us a quick background, where you're at now and how you got there? Yeah, no problem. My name's Tom. I am originally from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which is about two hours from Wilmington. I've been investing in real estate real seriously full-time for about three years, but I bought my first unit about seven years ago. Currently, I have 259 units, mostly single family. We have duplexes, triplexes. We have just a combination of a lot of different types of assets, and we focus on low income. Most of what we're buying is between fifty dollars and $130,000 in price. We don't do any flips. We're just buy and hold. And yeah, that's essentially in a nutshell, kind of our model. Yeah, that's awesome. That's a, a great overview. What'd you do before you got into real estate? Yeah, so I've had a few different companies. I had a marketing company, uh, which I still have, which kind of maintained that. And then I had a software company, which we just did e-commerce marketing platform that we had set up for that. And going way back, I sold uh, paintball guns online in high school. So uh, that's where I kind of got to start. That's to cover awesome. my habit. Yeah. So how'd you get started in real estate? It sounded like you, did you get started in like low income or, or what'd that look like? I bought my first property to live in. So I bought a condo back in, I think it was 2000, I think it was 2011 and, you know, got it for a really good price because it was still kind of recession, you know, after 08, lived in it for a couple of years and then decided I want a single family house. I was upside down on mine because back then I bought it you know, with 3% down and right. $10,000 Obama tax credit. So I wasn't in the best shape with it. So I just decided to rent it and was pretty shocked with how fast and you know how much money I was making renting one unit, making a few hundred dollars a month. I just decided to take a lot of the money that I was making from my marketing company and keep buying more condos. Yeah. And did you? how many condos did you buy until... Did you keep buying condos or did you switch over to single family? It took me like six condos before I realized I was an idiot and bought, started buying single families. Yeah. And it all hit me when we had an assessment for like three grand on one of the condos. And I was just so mad because I had three condos in a complex. So I had, you know, <laughs> like a $20,000. Yeah, it was pretty steep. And then they just arbitrarily every year increase HOAs and COAs. And it's just a joke, you know? Right. So unless you own the entire complex and you own the HOA, there's no point in buying a condo like that. Yeah, yeah, you're always at the mercy of the of the lowest price seller too. I mean, I've yeah. dabbled in that, and it's like you can try and make your condo as sweet and as beautiful as you want, but you get one character in there that wants to unload it, and that that has a real consequence on the rest of the prices. Yeah, I mean, one bad comp, and then everyone uses that as a benchmark. So that's true. What about the uh, scaling up? So you talked about you started in the condos. How did you yeah. how did you scale it up to the 259 units you're at right now? I went from the condos and then I decided to go real conservative into single family, meaning I was just buying, you know, one a month at the most that I could afford, which was at that time about 160, 100, I was buying $150,000 rental single families, which now I look back at and just realize how ridiculous that was, but but yeah, by the time I would buy $150,000 units I would then put, you know, a nice middle class tenant in there, it'd be thirteen to fourteen hundred dollars a month and just cash flow on that and then save up for another, you know, thirty thousand dollar down payment <laughs> and then rinse and repeat. And then it really kind of took my agent just saying, Hey, look, man, you can get the same rents on a house that costs a third of the price. And I really didn't believe them until I went out there, I went downtown, you know, in a pretty rough area. And I was like, well, look, if I want to test this out, I'm going to go as low end as I can possibly find. And sure enough, I found a $48,000 unit on Gore's Row in Wilmington, North Carolina. <laughs> you can go look it up. You know, if you actually Google it, there's been three murders on that road. 
that's how I knew I was in the right place. <laughs> so I uh, I bought it. I even financed it. I didn't even pay cash for it. I uh, I put ten grand down on it. Financed thirty eight grand. I had a mortgage payment of two hundred like ten dollars a month on a twenty year am. And day one, I put a thirteen hundred dollar a month tenant in there from Section Eight. And that's when I was oh. hooked. Yeah. And you got that for thirty eight thousand dollars. No, it was, uh, four, it was 40 something. Okay. Yeah, 48. How much work did that property need or was it ready to rent? It was ready to rent for most people, but I wanted to rent it really fast. So I probably put three grand in flooring and painting in the, paint in there. I think I was all in with all the other stuff that came in. I was probably in all 54, 55 grand, the whole thing. By the time I did the repairs and then, you know, uh, there was some other exterior stuff that I needed to do as well. But, but yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Do you still own it? I do. I'm selling it right now, actually. Only reason because we're 1031, 1031 exchanging into a bigger one, but it's a 208 Gores Row. You, you can uh, go uh, check that one out. What's the current rent? Uh, it is vacant because we uh, the last tenant moved out, and then it just makes it a lot easier to sell. Was it so still- right now we're selling it for 75 grand. Was it still Section 8 when you when your last tenant was in there? No, it was private. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. The private lease on it was we were renting it for 1200, so we took a little bit of a hit, but it's a lot less headache dealing with Section 8 when right. you're dealing with private. So like you, you mentioned as you're scaling up, you went from condos to like middle-class single-family houses, and then you discovered subsidized housing. Is that what helped you accelerate to you know hundreds of units, or, or what really helped change that? Yeah, yeah. So to kind of understand that, it went from when I hit probably 12 to 15 units that I was self-funding with my own businesses, and then around 15 units, if you're figuring on average $1,000 per rent, you know, on the low end, I was grossing 15,000, figure I was netting about, you know, half of that. So every two or three months, I had enough for a down payment on a unit. So I was buying six or seven a year, you know, back in 2015, 2016. And then when I had about 20 units, that's when I started talking to partners, you know, just organically, I just started People kind of saw what I was doing. My name kept popping up every time someone was downtown. They came to me looking for it. I would go to investor meetups. I'm a big, you know, car guy, so I would go to car, cars and coffee and talk to other, you know, people that were looking to get into real estate. And I just find that no matter who you talk to, the second you tell them that you're, you know, doing investment properties or rentals, they're always like, "Oh, I've always wanted to do that, but I just don't know how." Yeah. So, how I started working with that is, I would say, "Hey, man, you know, you got half a million bucks." I have these 20 properties. I have, you know, already these really good relationships with local banks. I can go ahead and get us financing on these 20 units. You put the cash down. I bring the financing. I already have management. I already have, you know, contractors. I have everything in place. We'll split the equity. We'll split the cash flow. And, you know, we'll set up in our own LLC. We'll both, you know, own half of it. And people, you know, just love that model. And then I did it for friends. You know, I have probably three or four friends that each wanted to buy five or six units that I've done, you know, that way as well. And most of those, you know, 250 some units came from one deal. I partnered up with a, my best friend's dad and we bought 106 units, well, it was 103 units, but there were some lots and stuff in there. So, you know, almost half of our my total portfolio came from one deal and that was $6.3 million that we did about six months ago. But yeah, just through partnerships, you know, we got really creative. Sometimes I would bring cash to the table because I didn't want to have, you know, any more, you know, debt right. on my name. And my, my friend would finance it. You know, he would have the ability to do that because when you're doing your first 10 deals, there's 10, 10 finance units, you can right. get best financing until, until Fannie Mae caps you. So, um, you know, anybody that can do a 30 year fixed mortgage at four and a half percent escrowed all in, you know, we were just, the, the cash flow is ridiculous because yeah. it's amortized for 30 years. Now all the, all the terms that I'm doing are five, 10 year balloons on a, maybe a 25 year AM. So I have a higher payment. So, so you are actually there. like finding friends or other people you knew who might only own one house or zero houses and you could get 10 conventional loans in their name. You manage yeah. it, you find the property, you do everything and then you just split the cash flow. Exactly. And um, that's a great model. I just, had, I, just, I just had a standard operating agreement that we would yep. do with them. They simply just said, hey, look, if we can sell for this amount, we will. If we can't, we'll just keep it. And most of the people that I was dealing with didn't need the money. That's the best case scenario, you know, because then you don't have that pressure of, oh, my God, I have to rent this in 30 days. You right. know, they can take a, a two or three month hit with, you know, mortgage coming out of both our pockets. So 
but yeah, that's essentially the way I did it. And then I've also partnered up where we did commercial policy, commercial loans as well. And the unit, the hundred and some unit that we just did, we're both on the note there. So Got it. But yeah, no, that's, that's awesome. I, I love that tip of finding other people to partner with who either have money or able to get financing. And that's a great way. Did you ever, once you hit 10 conventional loans, did you ever try to repackage some of those into like a commercial loan so that you can go get a few more conventional loans yourself first? Or do you just jump straight into partnering? I did try doing that. A lot of them, the thing that I like about my 10 units, that my first 10 units is that I don't ever have to worry about a five-year balloon being called. It's a 30-year fix. It just said that I'm always going to have, it's always going to be kind of like, if everything else goes to shit, then, you know, I always have my 10 that are going to be there for the 30 year fix. So I never really wanted to get out of a out of that into a commercial product. It's kind of a pain in the you know, neck that I have to deal with those 10 units because I have 10 separate mortgages in 10 separate banks. You know, a lot of them, well, not 10 separate banks, probably five separate banks. But at the beginning, a lot of them weren't willing to give me, you know, five or six loans. They were giving like, we'll give you two, you know, don't, yeah. don't mess it up kind of deal. So. What's your advice yeah. for investors who might have hit their 10 conventional loan cap and they're, they've got friends who are interested um, in getting into investment properties? What's your advice for them on how to structure that deal and some of the lessons you learned in doing that with a couple of different people? Yeah, so once you hit the 10 financed mortgage cap, I would look at small community banks that have their own in-house portfolio products. There's a lot of time, I mean, I've done probably four or five deals where they're not commercial loans. They're, you know, simply 30 year conventional, but the paper is being held by the bank. They don't sell it to Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac. So that way they're not bound by the same compliance restrictions that Fannie Mae has. And as far as how I structured it, it was the same way. You know, I, I would ask them for the cash. So, you know, if I've already gotten, you know, 10 units, depending on how your cash flow is, you may have already kind of, you know, exhausted a lot of your own money. So that's kind of a good way to say, and also I found that when you get to 10 units, that's way more than the average investor has. Right. So right. when you start right. going, when you start going to other investors and saying, Hey man, I got 10 units, you know, I'm making $6,000 a month and I know what I'm doing. They're a lot more apt to say, Hey, I want to jump in this as well with you. And I trust that you know what you're doing. Cause you know, here's your balance sheet, you know, here's right. the profit and loss. And uh, by that time you have relationships with banks, you have relationships with section eight, you have relationships with agents, brokers, contractors. Yeah. So that's kind of where I found where the tipping point was with getting trust from third parties that I know what I'm doing. Yeah, that's awesome. And are you, just to clarify, are you self-managing or do you use a third-party uh, property management company? I have my own property manager. So it's all in-house. Reason being is we have a lot of policies that you know a lot of property management companies just wouldn't want to do as far as we're really, really hardcore on evictions. We know there's just no leniency or flexibility. Um, and, and we don't want to wait until the 10th or the 15th for them to pay out their money. We're aggressive on collections where, you know, it's just going to be just kind of our way. So that's the only reason why I did it in house. It's probably pretty, probably more expensive to do it that way, but we know predictably, you know, when all the cash is coming in and dealing with all the different subsidized organizations that we're dealing with. So, yeah. Yeah. And lastly, like before we switch over, when you're doing these partnership deals 50-50 with a guy who's got the financing uh, ability you're looking for, are you splitting true cash flow? Are you splitting everything above like PITI? Are you including property management? Like what is that split of what you guys, uh, you know, write checks out at the end of the day? Yeah. So the way that we do it is we obviously pay the bank, you know, the principal interest tax right. and insurance first. After that, if I'm which I'm managing every single time. I just charge an eight percent flat property management fee, even if it's even if they only did five deals with five right. houses with me. So I just I still charge that, and then after that, then we split the cash flow and everything. we split the expenses. Everything, everything after expenses, yeah. Are you yeah. putting anything to side for like capex or vacancies into an account or? Yeah. So right now, the way that we do it. We only take draws every quarter. So depending on how well we did after expenses at that quarter, we'll then just set aside whatever we think is going to need. Gotcha. It just depends on the unit. You know, if we know the unit's already got a 20-year-old roof, we know the roof's going to be four grand. So we're going to say, hey, look, let's just take two grand out of this month. And the next quarter, we'll take another two grand and replace the roof. Yeah. So I don't have a fixed number. It's just completely based on the, on the unit, the deal, and what we're, what we're doing. No, I love that. I think a lot of people get too stuck in a way of picking a specific percentage when really it depends on the property and, you know, each item that actually has to be expensed. 
um, as a capital yeah. expense. And then we also force a lot of times the sellers to give us a three-year home warranty. So we're not paying a lot of the big stuff. No way. Yeah. So it's just like the 510 or whatever the big warranty company is. Yeah. We just say, hey, look, we're going to buy the house as is, but we want a three-year warranty on it. And they pay the you know, $2,000 to $1,800 for a three-year warranty. How's the um, follow-up from the warranty company? I've, I've had a couple of them and I kind of gave up on them because <laughs> sometimes they just didn't want to cover anything. Yeah, no, it's uh, a lot of times it's a joke, but where we really win with it is we know that, you know, the HVAC is going to go out, but it was good enough to pass the initial warranty inspection, but it just had the end of its service life. So what they'll do is they'll just buy you out of the warranty, but we didn't pay for the warranty. So we still get the two grand. <laughs> <Brave> money. <laughs> yeah. So when you do that over 150, 200 units, you know, that, that adds up really fast. So we're actually pretty pumped when they don't want to cover it because then they just send us a check back for the amount that was uh, paid on it. Okay, brilliant. I love it. We already talked a little bit about market rate versus subsidized rentals, Section 8. What do you feel currently and in the past? I've had maybe 20, 30 Section 8 properties. I don't have any currently, but I've always felt like there's a trailing effect on the Section 8 rent versus the market rent. I mean, it's completely dependent on the market. Here, they're above market rent, in my opinion. A lot of people just go by the fair market value. So when they go to put down on Section 8 on the form what they want to pay or what the what the rent is, they'll put 950 just because that's what they you know expect for, for the rent to be. But I learned really fast and completely by accident that we bought a property. It had a tenant in there, and it was a Section 8 tenant. And we, I just never asked the rent, you know, before I bought it. It was just one of those deals where I think we were buying like three or four at a time and it kind of fell through the cracks. And when we closed on it, the guy was like, oh yeah, you know, they're paying 1300 bucks a month. And I was like, wait, what? <laughs> they're, like, yeah. they're paying $1,300 a month. So that, and can, you know, combined with the original one I did on Gore's Row where, you know, they were in that $1,300 range as well. The only reason I thought the initial one was because I thought they were disabled. So I thought that was like an exception. But then when I saw, you know, this other family just getting 13, I think it was 1325 on this one unit. That's kind of where I was like, okay, we need to be doing more of that. So as far as the headaches, though, there's definitely a lot of headaches, especially with our local one. You know, it's just they're understaffed, I think, is, is a big part of it. Half the time we get our payments on the fifth, sixth, seventh of the month. You know, it's actually our private tenants pay a lot of time faster than Section 8. It may, it may be more structured and organized in Mecklenburg County, where I'm sure it's obviously a much bigger housing authority, but we've had issues with that. They only have one inspector for the whole county, so sometimes it could take a couple of weeks to even get an inspection. If they fail the inspection you know, for something stupid, then you're waiting another week. So right. you have all the annual inspections, which if you have you know, 10, 15, 20, it's not a huge deal because it's broken down over you know, 12 months. But once you start scaling and you have inspections every month or every week, that's when it becomes like a massive headache because they nitpick, you know, like crazy. So really where we've been winning really hard on the subsidized is with ministries and charities and Salvation Army because they pay the same as Section 8, if not more, and they have half the scrutiny that we have with uh, Section 8. So, yeah. What advice do you have for investors who may be afraid to rent to Section 8 because they've heard the horror story from a friend of a friend? What advice do you have to them for people who are like afraid of it? I would say that you just have to try it and see how it is in your area. And we still screen them like a private, you know, tenant. So as long as they pass all the regular checks, then in that case, you know, it's the same risk that you're going to have with the with a regular with a private tenant. I think where a lot of people completely mess themselves up is thinking that Section Eight's already pre-screened them and pre-checked right, everything. Right. They credit check. They don't. All they check to see if they're a convicted felon. If they past that very, very low benchmark, then <laughs> they get a voucher. But no, I mean, we have we have Section 8 tenants that take care of their houses better than I take care of my primary residence. So it can really be a really good thing. And it's, you know, it is guaranteed, depending if you make sure you pass your inspections and they don't want to lose their voucher. You know, if they destroy your house, if they don't pay their portion, then you simply call up their Section 8 counselor and say, hey, look, person X didn't pay. And they, they call them and then you get a call next day with like, Hey, I got my credit card ready. I was like, okay. Cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I had a conversation with a guy like that today. Actually, we were talking about tenants wanting to get, you know, once their lease is up and if you don't release them, you know, give them the blessing that the property was left to you in a good condition, then you can really screw them up on their future Section 8 rentals. So that's yeah. a good thing. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's what we do as well to make sure that um, 
the units are left in decent shape. Yeah. What are some of the uh, top lessons you've learned over the last seven or so years investing in real estate, whether it's with screening tenants or buying properties? Like, what do you think some of the top lessons you've learned are? Top lesson was definitely be, it's really find find your niche locally. I think it's going to change everywhere. We found our niche and really hit our stride when we figured that we're not buying anything over 80 grand. We're not buying anything outside of downtown because we see a lot of growth there. And then as far as screening, just get a process. You know, we use myrentals.com for screening and that works really well. You know, they pay the tenant pays at 29 bucks. We get their full credit report and background check and eviction history. Just force everyone through that. And then, you know, just processes. We have documented process for everything that we do as far as, do you say how or yeah? No, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah that, that was it. We're just coming up with processes for, for evictions, process for notices, processes for software and, you know, not jumping around software to software, which we did a lot at the beginning. But yeah, that's that, that would be the biggest, I would say, takeaway. Oh, and just don't trust any tenants whatsoever <laughs> for, any, for any, any reason. Yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't care if it was my mom. I wouldn't trust them. Assume, so, assume uh, the opposite of what they tell you? Yeah, every single time. <laughs> You already mentioned uh, like an 80K price point for your rentals. What else do you look for in a rental property yeah. as far as underwriting or basic evaluations? Yeah, so um, with subsidized housing, location is not really a factor at all. You know, this, We're not in it for the appreciation or the flip, so we really don't care about where it's located. As I said, I bought one on literally it's called you know Murder Row. So um, we're in it for the cash flow. As far as what I'm looking for, we really target three bedrooms. Uh, they're all historic 80, 90 year old homes. So we already know that it's going to be a three, one or a two, one. Very rarely do we get a three, two or a two, two. We are looking for roof, you know, roof and HVAC. If we go there and it's all window units and it's got a 30 year old roof, we're going to make them replace it or give us a huge you know, discount on it. And that's going to be the first thing we change out because most of the headache is going to come from the roof and heating and air. Everything else is kind of secondary. You know, if you have a roof, three tab uh, shingles on your roofs, it's going to leak. It's going to get in the drywall. Ceilings are going to collapse. Insulation is going to fall. You're going to have tenants calling you about mold. It's just not worth it. Heating and air every single time the season changes, you're spending $1,000 on a compressor or a motor or Freon. So those are the two that we that we look at quick. And then after that, it's just really size. We, we really we don't buy big houses, even if we can, you know, if it's in that $80,000 model. I really don't like the 1,800 square foot, four bedrooms, you know, two stories, which are out there for that price. You get more out of Section 8, but it's just exponentially more work and maintenance when you get to two stories. And we really are sweet spot. Our perfect house that I'll buy without even looking, which I do all the time, is three bedroom, one bath, 1,000 square feet, vinyl siding, architectural shingle roof, and a, you know, carrier train or Goodman unit outside. Yeah, that's kind of what we look for. That was an awesome answer. I appreciate like the detail you went to that. Yeah, that uh, two-story. I never thought about uh, the two-story aspect of it. Yeah, the reason why I say that is, and like I said, it's every market's different. I mean, a lot of markets you can't even buy a double-wide trailer for eighty grand. But like here, you can buy a two-story house, but then you're dealing with the infrastructure of the second floor. You know, a lot of it could be rotted. There's liability risks. A lot of times, the stairs are shot going to the right. second floor. When the roof leaks, it not only goes to the top, you know, it starts rotting everything underneath it. So we just really avoid that at all yeah. costs. That's awesome to know. I was actually looking at a 4-1 outside of Charlotte last week, $70,000, and the Section 8 rent on it was, you know, about fifteen fifty a month. Yeah. But it was and, I mean, two you will stories. Get... So Yeah. And, and was... I mean, you'll get that. They pay the same thing here. You're, you're going to get a much higher rent out of it. But... What you don't take into consideration is when you do a four-bedroom four house, you're going to be renting to a family with six or seven people. Right. Yeah. And the amount of wear and tear that six or seven people put on a house like that, it's just you're going to be spending, you know, you're going to be putting new floors, new paint, new everything by the time they walk out. So you have to kind of factor that in as well. Yeah. That's why I like um, the twos and, you know, I love the threes, but sometimes the twos are nice as well because we can get a couple hundred dollars less per month. But it's nine times out of 10, like two roommates or a couple and, you know, they're at work all day and they live, you know, they just sleep there and it's very, it's next to no, nowhere in terror when they leave. Yeah. You, you can assume in a section eight that if you've got a four bedroom, you're going to have at least eight people living in that thing. Yeah, definitely. 
I think I found out a law too once I moved to North Carolina that, and the Section Eight I believe enforces it if if kids are over a certain age, you can't have a boy and a girl living in the same room. I, I never knew that before uh, I got into Section Eight. Yeah, they do. And then like also they can't like stay with their parents if they're over a certain age as well. They have all sorts of like you know contingencies and conditions on it. Yeah. And I know you mentioned before about some of the ways you finance properties, whether it's using partnerships or um, conventional loans and local banks. Are there any other ways you finance properties? Like, are you doing commercial loans on obviously the larger portfolios? Yeah. So if I'm not doing a partnership and they're already having a conventional 30-year fixed, then yeah, I'm doing a, most of the time it's going to be a 20-year AM, 5.5% on a five-year balloon is like a typical loan that I'm doing right now. I've worked it out with most of the banks that I deal with where they don't they don't have a minimum. A lot of times I'll have like a $50,000 loan minimum, but I just do so much volume with them that it just kind of makes up for it. And that's why it's really important. That's probably like the most important part of this whole financial financing piece is building the relationship with the banker. Only going to small local banks. I mean, I, I, I'm actually next week going to lunch with one of my bankers. And then, you know, they bring out the spreadsheet and we go over all the properties and what I'm doing. And, and it's funny because most of their investors aren't dealing with the kind of properties that I am. Right. So when, when they're seeing the cap rates that I'm getting, like he doesn't believe me after like show him, you know, bank statements. So yeah. he's like, there's no way you're getting 1350 on a three, you know, a $60,000 three bedroom. I'm like, I mean, here's the HUD and here's the, you know, half contract from section eight. So yeah. I don't know what to tell you, man. And here's the other 200 that I'm also doing. Yeah. On, right. Yeah. But once you have that relationship, you can get a lot more creative, you know, because a lot of times they're going to try to offer you that 15-year amortization with a crazy high payment. But if you tell them, hey, look, I'm buying five more this quarter, you know, let me get a 20-year AM, they're flexible with that. So that's really it. I have probably four bankers like that that I can call right now and just send them a contract blindly. And then, hey, man, I'll see you in 30 days when we close this thing. And they're like, all right. Yeah. So that's, that's, awesome. that's why you don't want to bounce around from bank to bank or using the big banks that really don't care, you know. If you come or go, these guys are actually committed to, you know, getting you somewhere. Yeah. What advice do you have for newer investors or people who aren't past their their ten units on building those relationships with the bankers and how to find the small ones? You just you know call them up or walk through the door. What advice do you have for them? Yeah, the way that I did it was I just called them. I was I literally just searched Bloomington Community Banks and just you know spoke to the commercial lending vice president is usually their title or vice president of commercial lending is most of the time what their uh, title is. And then just told them, Hey, look, you know, I have everything you're gonna be looking for. I have my W2s. I have, you know, excellent credit. I have, you know, the 20, 25% down payment. I want to buy this many units this quarter of this year. How many will you allow me to buy? And then, you know, I would try to set up an appointment and, you know, go and talk to them. Perfect. That's awesome. Yeah, I, th- I think that's what people need to do, and not just go to like Wells Fargo, Bank of America, get declined. Oh, you won't get anywhere. Like, oh, yeah, this doesn't work. Can't do it this way. Yeah, commercial yeah. banks are just nice too, because once you start working with them, the first time you know you got to go give them literally everything they they ask for, three years of of everything, including like your blood sample. Oh, but yeah. once you get in a rhythm with them, it's like okay, yeah, we'll close that for you in thirty days. Well, that's the other thing is with commercial or with commercial loans, they're underwriting the asset and not really as much you. I would say a couple of the banks, they didn't even ask for W-2s. They just asked for bank statement, just seeing that I had the reserves to cover it. And they asked for the rent roll and they asked for the leases. And that, that was it. And they obviously had to check my credit. But some of those banks, I didn't even provide any financials about myself. So that's that's really important. Because when you're dealing with those commercial loans, it's a riskier loan because you have to refinance it in five years. But it's a lot more contingent on what you're buying and how much money it's making versus, you know, how much money you make. Right. You kind of mentioned earlier your screening process with um, the website you use that checks their credit and whatnot. Do you have any other screenings that you go through for your tenants? We just manually go check the sex offender list. We search for NC offenders, which is just convicted felons, um, and it does female and male, and we just see if they've ever been an inmate in a North Carolina prison. But MyRental.com really shows everything. We just use it to double, to double check. It, it does eviction lookup. It does multi-state criminal check and a bunch of other things. And as far as what we're doing for screening, 
majority of the people that are renting for low income have bad credit. There's just no way around it. Right. You know, it's just it's it's a, almost a standard. Occasionally, you'll find the unicorn that's got like a 720 credit score <laughs> and it's just, you know, it's a magical thing, but it very rarely happens. It's usually a 525 credit score and, you know, student loans, Verizon and US auto loans. So, what we look for with that is collections that have been paid off. You know, if they have a ton of outstanding collections, it means that they just don't care. Right. And they're going to do the same thing to you. Because I've gone back and looked at eviction histories, and then I went back and looked at the credit report to see if there was a trend, and it's absolutely a trend. If they have out- outstanding collection balances, they're going to shaft you. And But a lot of times, the exceptions that we'll do is just medical. A lot of people just don't have health insurance, and they go and end up, you know, sick and have a $50,000 hospital bill that's, that's outstanding. We really don't hold that against them, but... If it's a bunch of Verizon bills and power bills and water bills, it means they can't even get it into their own name because the deposit's so high. Then we don't even we don't even bother right. renting to them. And then any sex offender, or felon, or anything like that. We've done some felons actually, but they were just like DUIs. You know, it wasn't anything violent. It wasn't anything sexual. It wasn't anything you know crazy. They just like to drink and drive a lot. So, you know, that happens in Wilmington. Yeah, it happens a lot. You're actually not you're in the norm if uh, you have a DUI. Versus yeah, I think way. Wilmington is it, is it the highest per capita in the country? I think so. I don't know in the country, but it's definitely up there. I mean, there's a lot of people that drink and drive here. Yeah, I feel like that was in the news when we were like just graduating college. Like Wilmington wins <laughs> like was, top five. I was gonna ask how Jim had so much information on this, but I guess never had a DUI. I guess we'll it stick was, with the, the, on the news article that he read when he was graduating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, funny. No, that's awesome. So, like, Tom, what are your future goals and focus? Are you going to continue building your single-family portfolio, or what does that look like? Man, that was the plan until, like, a week ago. We bought five single families, and I was starting to renovate them, you know, the usual plan to go and and rent them. And then I got a call, like, a few nights ago, like 11 o'clock at night. It was really weird, from an agent. And she's like, hey, I have a client that just fell out of contract like an hour ago and they were rent they're gonna rent one of the or buy a unit across the street from your house and I saw your house and I walked over there because it was vacant and my electrician was working there late and he, she asked for my number and she called me at that time and I was like hey do you want to sell your house I was like no man I just bought it you know I'm about to rent it to uh I think it was actually to section eight it was a just a home run house I mean it was you know dirty and we just cleaned it up and it was going to be a 1350 all day forever and she's like, well, look, what did you buy it for? And I said, $62,000. And she's like, all right, well, we had put that other house across the street under contract for 145, so we'll offer you the same thing. <laughs> I said, all right, <laughs> like, I'll, call, I'll call Section 8 in the morning and tell them that it's under contract. So I have it under contract right now for 145000 Man, so, so this will be your first then, flip. It will be my first, completely accidental, <laughs> unintentional flip. Yeah, I and my, would... my lender is going to be pissed, too, because it's only like a $50,000 loan that it took like a month to close, and now it's going to be settled next month. And we are not going to 1031 it. We're just going to take the cash and then buy another like six yeah, or seven. I, that, that never happens to me. I always get somebody that calls, comes over and asks the electrician for my phone number, and it's always because they want to rent it. Nobody's ever like, <laughs> yeah, I want to buy oh, it. Yeah, no, that that always happens to me as well. Or when I'm just like there looking at it, they'll just like walk in the door and say, you know, is it for rent? <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, call section eight. They'll, they'll tell you all about it. But um, but yeah, that's where it kind of the light bulb moment happened because then she was like, oh, and I her friend wants the buyer's friend wants to move here as well. Do you have anything else? And I, I sure was like, do. I was like, yeah, <laughs> at one forty five, yes, ma'am. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So she put something else under contract yesterday for 139 and I bought it for 55. So like that's kind of where now that's like 10 years worth of rent, you know, cash flow. So yeah. I said to her, as long as you're able to find the buyers and these are just 3% deals, you know, just 3% on her end. And after I give her three or four, I'm going to knock it down to 2.5, you know, just buyer's commission. If she finds the buyer, I'll give her the inventory because Wilmington, Jacksonville, anywhere around here, just the inventory for low-income houses is, is so limited. You know, right. if you go right now and you go look at under 100,000 in Wilmington, you're not going to find much. You might find my house for 149 under contract, 145 <laughs> contract. But 
Actually, no, because it was never on MLS. It never got listed, so it's not going to be on there but um, until it closes. But yeah, that's that's just what we did. So are you good, like, in the future, are you looking to, like, sell some of your portfolio to some of these, you know, home buyers, or, or what are you doing? Are you going to keep growing your single-family portfolio? What does that look like? Yeah, um, I would say I want to get to 500 units and then just sell out to a hedge fund. So a couple of different uh, agents that I work with also have relationships with hedge funds that would want to buy subsidized housing and i would probably just sell out to them i like it and then what retire on a beach or yeah or a mountain probably (laughs) you don't want to go in the commercial no i mean once i get 500 units i'll I'll have seen enough about everything 500 units times average probably eighty thousand dollars a unit you know yeah per price that's that's a good payday yeah that's a good number and really, the main goal is with the flips, we're either going to take all that cash and just pay down our loans off with all that extra cash flow, or we're just going to improve and upgrade and just increase the value of the overall portfolio. Uh, we're talking to some different companies that do siding, and they have big crews, and we want to side like 40 or 50 houses at a time. Because that, that, that makes the biggest increase in overall yeah. value is you know, vinyl siding. Because a lot of these are, have original like 90-year-old you know, wood shale siding, and it just looks terrible. So um, we want to do that. Do you guys have a company called All Sides in Wilmington? I haven't, not that I've heard of. You should look them up. It's A-L-S-I-D-E-S, but they do a lot of the subcontracting work and they actually supply the siding. And I mean, they do, for like most of the siding and windows and doors companies, they are the ones that actually do the work. And then if you've got 40 or 50 houses you want sided, you might be able to get it significantly cheaper than a, you know, quote unquote siding company. Yeah, no, that's what we're looking for, especially if we can work in financing and doing the whole portfolio because a lot of them, well, not, we wouldn't need it for all of them because a lot of them have vinyl siding, but I would say probably at least half we would be able to work out. And if we threw 100 houses to a siding company, it'd probably get a pretty good deal and just buy it all in bulk. Yeah. yeah. Not that you haven't given a plethora of advice, but what would you, do you have any advice you'd, you'd give to an investor that just wants to get started right now? Man, I would just say, because I, sp- I speak to those people all the time. Like I go to a lot of the real estate investor association meetups locally, and that's probably like the question that I get the most. I, for what I did, the way I learned is just to do it. Just go buy something. You know, you're, it's going to be very difficult for you to ruin yourself financially by buying a seventy thousand dollars house, you know, and and renting it out. Worst comes to worst, you're always going to be able to rent it for your mortgage unless you just completely. I don't even know how you would screw that up, actually. But buying one house, you would learn more from that one purchase than going to all the seminars and workshops and meetups and bigger pocket, you know, forum reading and right. all the courses and stuff that you can buy. I, I've never bought one of those. You know, the only thing that I've done was just buy real estate. You're going to talk to all the agents, all the brokers, all the lenders, appraisers, inspectors, contractors, and you'll figure it out on the way. So, you know, put together your 12 grand and go buy a $70,000 house and if you can do it once, you can do it 258 times, 259 times. No, absolutely. I mean, let's be honest. You don't really learn anything until you buy one and, and screw up a few things. Yeah, exactly. And I have done that. I have bought some houses where they just won't rent. You know, they're just an unrentable house to the point where now what I've done is just given them to my contractors because they'll either have crackheads that break in every other night or <laughs> it'll be on a very, very bad like drug alley. Because so I have bought some houses like that. But um, the vast majority of what we're buying are in, you know, decent neighborhoods that are transitional. You know, they're up and coming. They're being near the main downtown scene. So everything is kind of growing around it. Uh, right now, I'm doing a lot of buying around um, northern part of downtown because they're building a live nation amphitheater with 10,000 people. Um, and that's going to open next year. And the first act, I think, is going to be like Dave Chappelle. So wow. I already have four houses that I just bought that is a block from it. So I'm just going to Airbnb those. And they started licensing and regulating Airbnb here. So now I'm trying to get as many Airbnb licenses as I can because it sticks with the house. So you get one to a house that I can only imagine what it's going to do to the value of it. Wow. Yeah, that's uh, incredible. That's yeah, a damn good kind of strategy, man. So. All right. You ready for the rapid fire rounds? You got 30 seconds to answer each one. Yeah. All right. Let's go. What's your favorite way to source deals? off market with my agent. My agent just focuses on looking for deals for me and bringing them to me. Full time, just one agent focuses on Tom Cruise. <laughs> no, he's not 100% for me, but he I'm probably his biggest client. So yeah, he all all he does is when he hears about something I'm the first one he lets know and I'm the first the first shot at it. Awesome. What motivates you? 
No, oh, wow, that's a very open-ended. Yeah. Uh, what motivates <laughs> me? Financial freedom and not having to answer to anybody. Perfect. What's your favorite type of property? Uh, single family. Single family? And we have the exact description of it. What are two mistakes you'd avoid if you started over today? Not buying condos and partnering with high net worth individuals sooner. I love it. Crushed it, man. That, that was, was awesome. Yeah, five stars. So much gold in there. Are you open with sharing some of like your lease terms that you throw in there? Or yeah. Do you want to keep yeah, that? Totally. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's nothing. I mean, there's there's enough properties here. So I only owe I only own six percent of the total downtown market. So I still have six ninety four percent to buy. Oh, let's go. So there's a ton of, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> tell us about, tell uh, lease, us about terms. lease terms that you that you have that are unique to you and not what most of the market uses. Yeah. So a lot of people will default to the one year length for the lease term. Turnover is by far and away the thing that's going to crush your cash flow the fastest, especially if you have someone that trashes your unit. So we force minimum two year leases for everybody. It doesn't matter what their situation is. And again, I hate to disclaim this every single time, but it just depends on the market here, especially after that you know, hurricane about seven months ago, it's tough to find housing. So you can dictate whatever terms you want. So that's one, you know, two year lease terms. And we'll give a discount if they do a three or four year lease terms. We have some tenants on a five year lease. And we have just built in, you know, rent increases. We have a $300 maintenance cap, meaning if there's any issue under $300, the tenant's paying for it air filters, light bulbs, if they clog a sink or a toilet, or if the heating and air goes out and it's a result of negligence with the air, you know, the air filter not being replaced, it's on them. You know, if they kick a hole in the wall or, you know, cabinet or rips off, it's on them. So that really just leads us down to all the big stuff, which then is covered by warranty. So our CapEx and our maintenance is really reduced because we have it covered, you know, one way or another. Outside of that, we are only debit and credit card only. We don't do money order cash checks. We tell them that up front. You know, if you don't have a bank account or you can't get a Walmart prepaid Visa gift card every single month to load it up, you know, just don't even don't even bother. We don't, you know, inc- uh, we don't chase payments. You know, for the most part, it's all automated with email and text notifications. You know, at the on the first day of every month, they get a text saying, "Hey, are you ready to pay your rent?" If yes, reply with yes, and then it just charges their account automatically. What happens at 11.59 on the first of the month? Uh, I would say that about 15% of them will pay. Yeah, it doesn't go out. It goes out at 8 a.m. on the first. And what happens is, you know, we might pick up 15 or 20 grand in the first, you know, hour. And then the rest of it waits until 5 or 6 p.m. after work. And then we're collecting up until like the 15th. We usually evict on the 11th because you have to give them a 10-day notice. So... If they don't pay by the first, then they automatically get that note, the eviction notice, their 10-day eviction notice, and then we're, we're filing on the 11th, and then they're out by the 27th, 28th. So just to what? clarify, at the end of the first of the month, at the end of the day or the end of the night, you send a eviction notice so that that 10-day period starts? At the end, yeah, yeah. At the end of the first, the last, I think it goes out at like 11 o'clock at night, saying, hey, look, we didn't receive your payment today this is just your notice that you're uh, going to be evicted in 10 days because then you already get that out of the way and then they're out. And most of the time that's enough of a kind of a kick for them to pay. Um, a lot of them are just going to wait until we give them a five day grace period like everybody else until the fifth, but they're getting automatic. I mean, it's, we're right up there with, you know, the max you can do under fair housing. debt collection practices, yeah. not, not fair housing, fair debt collection because yeah. that's what we're doing is collecting a debt. So, we adhere to all that, but yeah, I mean, it's once per day, text and email, following up with that. Is there anything you do to like tenant-proof the property before they move in? Yeah, so with Section 8, what we do is with a lot of our units, we take down all ceiling fans. We don't have ceiling fans in any of our units, even the nice ones. That's just the first thing that gets ripped down, first thing, the blades break, they never clean it, they sag, and once they break, if it's in the unit, then guess what? You have to replace it, especially with Section 8. You can't just remove it and put a light bulb up there, or a you know, a, a dome light. You have to replace it with what was there before. So at least with the department, you know, the local housing here, that's what they enforce. We get rid of storm doors. You know, kids love to hang on storm doors and jump, you know, those things crack and break. All of those arms, hydraulic arms always break. We get rid of those. We leave like a six pack of air filters 
in the closet, let them know that it's there, replace it. So we're starting to do subscriptions now for air filters and just letting them, yep. you know, do it that way. That way they have no reason not to, you know, cost us like 20 bucks a unit. We rip out dishwashers, dishwashers and garbage disposals. We do not provide anything. Really? Also, yeah, those both break all the time. It's an amenity. You know, it's at the end of the day, low income housing. We're going to, it's going to be the bare minimum that's going to be, you know, clean and safe to live in. But they just throw everything down that disposal and inevitably it's going to lead to a $100 service call and a new $150 disposal. Yeah, I just built a new house, new construction for a rental specifically. And I, I didn't put a garbage disposal in. And the plumber's like, wait a minute, you're not putting a garbage disposal in? And I'm like, no, yeah. man, this is for a rental. We're, there's there's no, uh, no amenities yeah. like that. Yeah, we don't do washers and dryers unless they want to rent it. We rent washers and dryers for $10 each per month if they want to do that. And then we also have, we, we, we have to provide fridge and stove, which I wouldn't if I didn't have to, but we, it's just at bare minimum. So uh, we, do, we do provide that. We have really good relationships with used appliance vendors locally where we're paying 150 bucks for a fridge, you know, 110, 120 bucks for a stove. Oh, non-smoking. A lot of them, you know, like to smoke in the units. We just tell them up front, it's a thousand dollars, you know, uh, smoking fee. If you smoke in it, we're just going to charge you the thousand dollars. That's where the advantage of having a credit card on file at the end. There's really no question. We have them signed initial next to that. So they understand that there's no smoking smell when they got there. And that's, that's for the most part, the big stuff that, that we enforce. No, those are amazing. You mentioned earlier the, the text that you send out as far as prompting them for a payment on the first. Yeah. Is that a proprietary software or is that something that anybody can use? What is that? Yeah, so I did have a custom built. We use a software called WHMCS, which is Web Host Manager Complete Solution. It's actually designed as a billing and support ticket platform for the web hosting industry which I come from originally when I was doing marketing. So we just uh, modified it for property management. Cause I mean, at the end of the day, you put clients in there, you have, you know, the products are the addresses and then you, it, it connects with authorized.net, which does our payment processing. And then with the text messages, we, I had a, my, my developer create a API integration with Twilio and then pretty much Twilio sends out the text. They respond to it. It posts back to our platform and then it, it, it triggers the, uh, capture event inside of authorized.net and then it sends everybody receipts and invoices so so for for non-techies out there he's got a somewhat custom software setup where he sends a text message automatically to residents letting them know hey do you want to pay and if they don't pay by the end of the day he sends an electronic alert or eviction notice right at the end of the day okay yeah that's awesome that's well done yeah, that's yeah. awesome, man. And can you talk a little bit about the, the $300 maintenance cap? If they've got like a plumbing leak or an electrical issue and they get their buddy down their street or their cousin to fix it, is that okay? Or do you require them to get licensed contractors or what does that look like? Yeah, anything that could turn out to be a much bigger issue. Like if, it's, like if their outlet's not working and it could have just been a short or they, you know, were running a really high amperage, you know, device. We've had right. people run trying to cut stuff and they were using like, like table saws inside and they'll use the outlets and then it just, it blows the whole thing. Then we'll force them to pay it. And we'll still, I mean, we have a contract, a full-time contractor on staff. They'll go out there and check it out and see what happened. If the whole outlet's all burnt up, Hey man, you got to pay for a new outlet here. But a lot of the houses are super old, you know, hundred year old houses with some of them still have a original knob and tube electrical, you know, yeah. that just never got upgraded. So in which case then, yeah, we're going to step in and help them. It's just the stuff that is going to be very clearly negligent. If they have a toilet that got clogged, that wasn't clogged when they move in, guess what? They're paying for it. You know, if they flood it, you know, there's tenant insurance that we also require them to have. We haven't really ran into that. I mean, the people have to live there, you know, it's very rare. They're going to have someone go in there that doesn't know what they're doing or, even if they're not licensed, for the most part, they'll ask us, hey, my cousin wants to come and help and fix it. We'll just ask them if they've done that before and you know, kind of get a sense of it. But uh, for the most part, it works pretty well. It's mostly as a deterrent because then they know that if their kid's hanging on the cabinet, they're going to be paying for a new cabinet door or a whole new $100 cabinet. And that, for the most part, works pretty well. I love it. What's your like go-to for like renovate or tenant proofing a property that you buy that was, you know, like a mill house built anywhere from 1900 to like 1950s. What do you do? Like paint, carpet, obviously take out the dishwasher. Like what are some of the stuff you do when you first buy a property to get it ready to rent out? 
Yeah, so flooring is the biggest thing as far as cosmetic and getting it to pass inspection. If it's got nasty carpet, that's the first thing we do is pull it all up. And then we're putting vinyl plank down. You know, we buy it at 90 cents a square foot. Then my guy installs it for a dollar square foot. So call it two bucks all in. Two dollars installed and, you know, average eight, nine hundred square feet of that. So we're a couple thousand bucks in. And then appliances, if they're broken, we'll replace them. And then paint, you know, we're paying a hundred bucks a room to, to paint. So that's the big stuff that we do interiors. Yeah, vinyl plank, I think, is the most underrated material out there in the housing industry at this point. I mean, I think if people had a knew what it was all about and how indestructible it was, it would be in a lot more even high-end homes. Yeah, it is, especially when a lot of people cheap out and put laminate down and the right. first time they spill water or their you know <laughs> dog has an accident on the floor, it just bubbles up, it gets disgusting, and you have to redo the whole thing. So um, yeah, it's really important to spend the extra money and put vinyl in because it really is indestructible. I mean, we haven't seen even the worst tenants, you know, put a scratch in it for the most part. Yeah, it's like mop it and get it ready for the next tenant. Yeah, that's exactly what we do. And then we also do, we put semi-gloss on the walls. We don't do satin or eggshell or anything. Yeah. Looks like an elementary school wall, but it works really well. You can just wipe it down and, you know, keep it moving. We do it all light gray. We actually, want people to see in my house, it's called Sonic Silver. It's a uh, really light uh, gray, and then we do a semi-gloss trim, so we just, found that and it seems to work really well yeah i can't agree more with that i mean you you can cut down at least probably one paint job using that semi-gloss as far as a move in move out yeah no you can and also just it looks better for a lot longer so yeah that's the way we go with it do you guys put down any carpet like in the bedrooms or is it all vinyl plank it's all vinyl plank we don't do any carpet anymore it's just people sometimes prefer it, especially in the winter when it's cold but it's it's just not a not something we even consider yeah because the first time they put a dog in it, it just destroyed it. Oh, yeah, it gets destroyed. And then my yeah. last question for you, man, is going jumping back to you partnering with other people who have you know, some capacity in getting conventional loans. You're putting the loan in their name. Are you deeding the property over into like an LLC that you create between them to like legally hold it, or how does that work? Yeah, so before, right after we put it under contract and they get the loan process started, I'll have my attorney prepare a quick claim deed. And then we both sign it into that LLC and then it closes under their name. And then we immediately record the quick claim deed after that as well. So that way it's both in our name. We own 50, 50 of it and we can, you know, not have to worry about it being his property until, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I love it, man. That's awesome. That's just the way we handle that. All right, man, this has been, this is all we got. This has been awesome, man. You crushed it. There's a ton of value in here. So I appreciate you taking the time to share some of your, gold nuggets no problem it was very nice meeting you over the skype nice machine too yeah <laughs> the skype machine <laughs> all, right, all right later hey, thanks tom bye thanks for joining us for another episode of who knows real estate be sure to subscribe to the podcast leave a review and check out our show notes for the guest contact info as well as ours be sure to look for our next episode thanks